This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to talk about how the clinical toxicology lab solves unknown cases. Many of them are coming from the California Poison Control Center. We sort of share the same campus. They're a couple blocks away, and we have regular meetings every week. So uh, I know that this is uh, a lay audience, but I have spoken here before and and know that many of you have uh, a lot of uh, technical and and other types of expertise. I'm hoping that uh, you still have a little bit of remembrance of chemistry when you're in college. That might be a few years for some of you, certainly a long time for me. Uh, Because this is not a chemistry course, but if you know a little bit about structures, it will help a lot. But at the same time, I will try to teach you the pertinent things that are needed in regards to chemistry and toxicology. So I want to start with this slide here, the death recently of Prince and then a few years ago of Michael Jackson. You can see the date of death and the date that the final toxicology report was listed. In many cases, a few months. In many other cases, it can take a year or longer. And so the question that forensic toxicologists often get asked is, what took so long? Why did it take, in Michael Jackson's case, more than six months to find out the cause of death, which was just propofol? So if his blood had come to my laboratory, we would have an answer inside of uh, one hour. But we're not also um, a forensic lab, and if uh, somebody were to challenge our results and were to look at the data that was used to make this conclusion, we too might have to slow down a little bit. But sometimes when it comes to clinical toxicology and when it comes to solving questions of immediate need because the patient needs that information and the doctors that are treating that information have to have it before uh, six months because at that point in time, the information is stale. The data is no longer useful for immediate management decisions. And so this is what we're about. We at the General... Uh, try to provide data, solve problems as quickly as we can. It's not always one hour. Like I said, that would be a little idealistic. But uh, we also believe that sometimes we can have what is called presumptive results. We think it's this, but if you put a gun to my head and say that you need to say this in a court of law, I might say otherwise. But at the same time, With presumptive information, people like Dr. Vo can use this information and try to make a a meaningful um, therapeutic or management decisions that could have an impact on that person's life. All right, so that's the basic context here of my presentation. Forensic toxicology, slow but definitive. Clinical toxicology, presumptive but fast. And I would tend to think that uh, if this were your loved one, uh, you can wait till the terminal event takes place, or we could try to do something before the terminal event has taken place. Now, we have a couple of different technologies for clinical toxicology testing. There is what we call targeted and untargeted. So the targeted asks, uh, we ask the question, Is a particular drug there 
absent or present. And it is easier than the untargeted. The untargeted, the question is not if is a drug there. It's the question of what is there. What of all the things that somebody might be exposed to might be present. And that becomes the difficulty part for forensic toxicology because they don't ask the question, is a particular drug there? They ask the question, what is present? And sometimes that's a PhD thesis. Sometimes that takes months, maybe even a year, to finally figure out all what might be present in a particularly difficult situation. Now, the two situations that I showed you, Michael Jackson and Prince, they were fairly straightforward, fentanyl and propofol. So what I'm going to do is talk about the targeted uh, methodology first, because that is something that many laboratories do in the clinical toxicology arena. I can't say that every hospital does this, but we're not unique in targeting particular compounds using our definitive procedures. And I want to walk you through it so that you can understand how it works without being an expert and then when I talk about the untargeted methodology, which is something that we pioneered at the General about seven or eight years ago, and other toxicology labs are only just now catching up with our science. It's, it's not uh, something that uh, um, <clears throat> I'm overly boastful of, but I really think that our team has made a big difference. So let's talk about the targeted approach. And the way it works is that you take a compound, so let's say it's cocaine, and you bombard it with electrons, and the cocaine molecule then fragments. It fragments in a very reproducible manner, unlike this example of a glass that if you were to shoot it with BB guns or BBs, it would break unpredictably every time you did the experiment. So with this mass spec procedure that we use today, we can not only show that the breakdown of this compound is, predict is uh, reproducible, in other words, when I do it here and my colleague in Boston does it using a similar equipment, we'll get the same fragments. So that's the beauty of it. And second point is not only can we get reproducibility, but we can also to some extent predict what the fragmentation pattern will look like based on the chemical structure. All right, so this 303 is the molecular weight of cocaine. That's how much it weighs if you add up all the carbons and the hydrogens and the oxygens. <clears throat> if we bombard this compound with electrons, these are the three fragments among the uh, many that you'll see, 182, 82, and 105. And from this fragmentation pattern, we can then get a mass spectrum. Now, this mass spectrum then becomes a fingerprint of the compound. And in theory, no two compounds have the same mass spectrum. All right? So this is uh, the molecule of cocaine. Um, and if we bombard that with electrons, these are some of the fragments that we'll see. If the bond between these two groups are broken, you add up the carbons, the nitrogens, and you'll get 82. If you break it up here, between that molecule and that molecule, and you count the left side, that's 182. And then if you count the right side minus that oxygen, okay, this right structure, it's 105. All right, if you really want me to, to prove it, there are six carbons here, one carbon here, each carbon is 12, that's 72. Oxygen is 16, 
So that's um, 88 or 98, and then there are one, two, three, four, five hydrogens. So I might have not have done it correctly, but that is how we know that these fragments occur. Now let's look at the mass spectrum. Here's the mass spectrum. Fingerprint of the compound has more molecules of fragments than I've described, but the principal ones, 82, 105, 182 are prominent. And then this one, 303, okay, that's the parent compound. That's the molecule that escapes any fragmentation. All right, so we shoot this uh, compound into our instrument, bombard it with electrons, come up with the spectrum, and then we can identify what it is. This is the target approach. If you ask me, is cocaine present, I can tell you pretty quickly. So what I want to do now is show you some cases where we've used the targeted approach, and a part of these cases have been described in my books. All right, so I'm no longer just a clinical laboratory director. I am now an um, author of short stories, stories that are designed for a lay audience like yourself, people who don't work necessarily in the medical industry. The title of the book is called Toxicology, because what you don't know can kill you. <clears throat> and I'll explain why I chose this title, and I'm going to go over some of the stories that, uh, that we have conducted over the years that have solved medical problems. So this is one that is well documented um, in the literature, in the popular press. It was a paper that is entitled How the Legal and Medical Systems Failed Patricia and Ryan Stalling. So it was about this uh, woman. She had a baby. She was uh, uh, living in a lake in, Saint, in the St. Louis area. The child was about uh, six months old. She was happy. She had, uh, the boy had the father's eyes and hair and dimples, and, and uh, it was the happiest time in her life, as she explains to this reporter. A new house, a healthy baby, what could be wrong? Well, everything w did change on this date, July 7th, 1989. She gave Ryan his evening baby bottle before putting him to bed. Unfortunately, Ryan did not uh, tolerate that well. He began, began to throw up, began to uh, have uh, uh, diarrhea, uh, temperature, and became very sick. They sent the child to the hospital, as any mother would. Well, so the clinical laboratory found ethylene glycol in the child's blood and in the baby's bottle nipple. <clears throat> ethylene glycol is antifreeze. We use that to prevent our cars from overheating or for freezing. And uh, Patricia was accused of poisoning her son. Uh, when the boy died, she was convicted of murder. Uh, and it was based on the result of a clinical laboratory test that showed ethylene glycol both in the um, blood of the decedent child and in the bottle that was given to her. So she gets a sentence of prison, and while in prison, she is uh, granted conjugal visits by her husband. Um, they have uh, sex in the, in the uh, prison uh, area. She gets pregnant. She delivers a second child while incarcerated. And after six months, 
the child developed the same symptoms as the as the brother had um, this uh, diarrhea, this um, metabolic acidosis, a lot of the same same signs. But this time, Patricia is not around. She's not able to poison her child, and it can't be her that's happening. So an investigation was made. One of my colleagues, so this was not my laboratory, thank goodness for that, uh, had made a mistake. They misidentified the ethylene glycol in the original child's blood. And in fact, the correct answer was that this child, as well as her younger brother, suffered from a metabolic inborn error of metabolism, something that is called methylmalonic acidemia, and was producing to excess this metabolite known as propionic acid, all right? So with the second child, they proved that the um, propionic acid was present, not ethylene glycol, and they were able to go back and look at the data from the first child. They didn't have specimens, but they reviewed the data, and they made some interesting conclusions. What they found was the original mass, uh, sorry, chromatogram, which is shown here, and what you see here is propylene glycol, uh, I'm sorry, ethylene glycol, and over here, propionic acid. And these two compounds are, do not coincide, that they are actually separated by the, um, <clears throat> the methodology that was used on both children. But the laboratory was a little careless. They didn't know that propionic acid migrated here. They saw a peak that they thought was ethylene glycol. The important thing here is that they did not do the mass spectral confirmation. They did not bombard the compound to look at the fingerprint to prove for sure that this was, in fact, not the poison, but the, um, <clears throat> the endpoint of a metabolic uh, um, metabolism, that it was an unusual metabolism, but it was not poison. And so then the question becomes, well, what about the, uh, the baby bottled nipple? I mean, how could that have had any propionic acid? Well, he was excreting it in his saliva as well. And they did the same mistake. They used a procedure that wasn't the correct procedure, and therefore the woman was uh, falsely incarcerated. So my colleague went to court. The case was reheard with the new evidence. She was exonerated, she was released from prison, and reunited with her family. But this was after several years, six years or so, of being in prison. So you can imagine that, that a big chunk of her life is gone. And the, the fact that she wasn't able to be with her family is something that uh, the system broke down. And it really boils down to the fact that uh, uh, the clinical laboratory, for which I represent, occupies an important space when it comes to medical diagnoses. Sometimes good things happen, as I'll show you. Sometimes bad things happen. And that we have to be cognizant and always try to move forward and do a better job. Let me give you another case. A story that I call the Internet Pharmacy. It's about a 22-year-old Russian female who complains of lethargy. And uh, she complains, she said that she takes Adderall for attention deficit disorder, and she gets it from India, all right? <clears throat> the symptoms, physical exam, lethargy, hypertension, tachycardia, heart rate of 124, so that's quite high, negative urine drug screen for amphetamine and all other targets. Now, Adderall is 
L-amphetamine, and it should have come out positive for this drug. So there's tip number one. It doesn't seem like that was correct. So we asked her to bring in the medications. This is the label of the product that she purchased called Addy Cure, and you can see that it contains uh, dextroamphetamine, amphetamine, and a number of other compounds at the concentrations that are listed. We went to the pharmacy and purchased materials that were manufactured in the United States, this Adderall XR formulation. And if you look at the different numbers here, particularly the one on the far right, contents are the same, the concentrations are the same, but these are, in fact, two different drugs, two different medications. Uh, so we had to figure out, well, what was wrong with this uh, Addy Cure 30? We got the pills, we tested it in our laboratory, and we tried to compare uh, the known effects of amphetamine toxicity with the clinical presentation that was given to us by the Poison Center toxicologist. And what we see were a number of things that don't line up, that don't add up. In particular, the eutox being should have been positive for amphetamines and, in fact, was negative. So we, we took our mass spec instrument. We knew what we were looking for. We targeted it, and we asked the question, is amphetamine present or absent? And we found, point in fact is, that it was absent. So what was in that pill? These are the pills that we got from the woman who recovered. And um, using our non-targeted screen, but we had a library of, a, of the number of common compounds that we see, we saw Zopidem. Zopidem is a sleep aid. It is a depressant, not like amphetamine, which is really more of a stimulant. And these matched more of the symptoms that were seen in this patient. Now, I want to take you back to this label. This is the bottom part of the label here. And I said that they got this uh, from, from India, from Mumbai. Uh, there's an address here. So we Google mapped it, and we found out that it points to a parking lot or some forest area. So this was all fictitious. This is what we run into at the Poison Center. We get medications that are not what they say they are, that they are, in fact, something else. Perhaps it's nefarious, someone trying to poison someone. Perhaps someone is just trying to fool around with God a little bit. But this is not an uncommon theme. And we need tools, and we have tools, to sort of uh, ferret this out. So this leads me to the next case, which is a little bit more recent. This was a few years ago, but this is one that Dr. Vo uh, worked on while she was, while she was uh, on the service, and this is called uh, fake Xanax. All right? So uh, I want to show you what happened here. We got uh, some pills from a group of people who were taking this medication, but it wasn't exactly identical to the real medication. Xanax is alprazolam. It's a benzodiazepine. It's a, it's a sedative. It's an anti-anxiety anti uh, agent. Uh, instead, what we found was it was laced with fentanyl, which is a very powerful opiate, and it was also laced with a benzodiazepine called etizolam. It's not available in the United States. It's not FDA cleared. It is available in other countries. So there was some benzo benzodiazepine-like sedative activity, 
but that this real idea was that it was a, a, a fentanyl poisoning. And at least one of these people died and was seen at the uh, morgue at our medical examiner's office. And many more of them had, uh, had taken these pills and got, were hospitalized and sick. We found the answer of the question here using our mass spec procedure. We reported it to the Department of Public Health, and an announcement was made over the airwaves to say, beware, you know, don't be using pills that you don't know where, where it comes from. What happens is that these people, they have presses, and they make their own pills, and they can put anything they want in it. And you can actually buy the press with the logo that makes it look like the real thing. Why anybody would do this, you know, we don't really understand the psychiatry or the psychology of this kind of poisoning. I'm just telling you that it happens. And this is really why I target my book, because what you don't know can, in fact, kill you. Here's another one. <clears throat> More recently, you can see Kathy was the principal author here on this one. Counterfeit Norco poisoning outbreak in San Francisco and the Northern California Bay Area, published in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly just uh, less than a year ago. Here are the tablets. One of them is fake. One of them is real. I can't tell a difference. You can't tell a difference. One of them is um, the real um, <clears throat> uh, opiate drug. The other one was also laced with fentanyl. So this leads me to the second part of our technology, and that is the untargeted mass spec procedures that we have pioneered, something that is called time of flight, or TOF, high resolution time of flight. And this is the diagram of the instrument itself. The left part is the same as the other instrument I showed you. You have an inlet for the sample. You have a source for electrons to bombard the sample to uh, break it up. In this case, we use something called soft ionization. We're actually not interested in breaking up the compound and forming a pattern. We are actually only interested in ionizing the molecule so that it can be charged. Ionizing is to remove an electron. It's now charged, and we can then focus it down this tube, and then this is actually the meat of the instrument, the so-called TOF. Okay, and what we do is we send this molecule in its native form, charged, up and down this flight path. So this is the actual path. The instrument itself is, is taller than my hand, all right? And it's sort of like a telescope. You know, the longer the path, the higher the resolution. And what we do is we just simply measure the time it takes from the point of ionization up and down the tube to the point where it is detected. And the larger the molecule, the longer it takes to get from point A to point B. And it's a linear relationship. You've got a small molecule, gets there fast. And a long molecule gets there slowly. And then if we have a resolution with microseconds, then we can separate the molecular mass of a compound not to its nominal molecular weight, but to three decimal points after its molecular weight. All right, so remember I showed you the cocaine molecule, 303, that's the nominal molecular weight. There are many other compounds that have a nominal molecular weight of 303. So that's why we have to do pattern recognition and we have to be able to match. Let me show you how high resolution really helps us. Here are three compounds, and again, I warned you, I'm going to talk a little chemistry, this is what I do. Three different compounds. 
morphine, 7-aminoclonazepam, which is a metabolite of clonazepam, <coughs> a, another benzodiazepine, and pentazazine, another uh, opiate uh, analgesic. Now, if you'll notice in the blue, the molecular weight, the nominal molecular weight is the same, 285. If you look at the structures, instantly you can say these are not the same compounds. They have completely different uh, molecular makeup. If you look at the formula, they're very different. This one has a chlorine group. This one has 27 hydrogens. This one has three oxygens. They're totally different molecules, but they just happen to have the same molecular weight. All right? So with our targeted analysis, where we can only measure to the 285.0 molecular weight, we can't differentiate these three. That's why we have to do pattern recognition. But with a time of flight, we can not only determine the molecular weight to three or four decimal points, but we can also now tell you what the formula is because there's only one formula that will produce this exact molecular weight. That's the power, exact molecular formula. So on that previous slide where I showed you this uh, uh, spectra, and we have these uh, libraries, computerized libraries, where we can match and algorithms that say, you know, that these things are the same or these things are not the same. And these have to be generated empirically. You have to inject the sample. You have to, you have to do the experiment. Somebody did it, and we have now maybe 10,000 spectra in our library. And you would think 10,000, that's quite a lot. That covers most of the drugs of abuse that we're commonly encountered. But we're entering an era where we're producing, not me, but, but the drug users are producing drugs, and they're changing the molecular formulas, and they're changing the side groups, and they're no longer what we have in our library. And if you have a new drug that we've never seen before, we can't find it using our old technology. But with the TOF technology, we have a chance, because at least we can determine what the molecular weight is. And then we use a different database, not this computerized mass spectrum database that uh, all of us uh, mass spec nerds have. No, no, it's another database. I'm pretty sure you have used it, probably even today. What is that database? It's Google. All right? So here's what we do. We type in C19, H27, N-O, hit enter, go to Wikipedia, boom. These are the only two compounds that have this formula, and they're isomers of each other. One is an is a antibiotic, one is, a, uh, is pentazazine, this uh, opiate. And then when I tell this to my poison center uh, colleagues, this is a no-brainer. They can look at the patient and say, you know, this is not an antibiotic. This is patient has pinpoint pupils. It has a depressed respiratory. We have our answer, pentazazine. And we can produce this information within minutes. Very powerful. Let me give you some examples. Here are two cases, different patients. They all had a, a history of taking Tylenol. And we know Tylenol is acetaminophen. But the levels are not really high, or at least one of them is not that high. And we worry about the liver function tests. And this particular patient had very high liver function tests, maybe need of a transplant. Uh, the other intoxicants that can produce this acidosis was negative. Now, generally, um, we don't see acidosis in Tylenol use. 
that you don't really get that sick. And these two patients had significant acidemia. Uh, here is a pH of 6.9. People don't live too long with pHs of 6.9. And so we were asked, what was the cause of the acidosis? Is there some other medication that was present we didn't know about that we should be concerned in these two patients? And don't tell me that answer a week from now. I need this answer now. So I put my team to work. This is a very complicated mass spectrum, actually time of flight uh, chromatogram. <laughs> but we saw this one little peak right there, highlighted. <clears throat> we did our analysis, and we came up with C5H7NO3. Okay, so I'm a chemist. I don't know what that is. We have to do an investigation. We go to Google. We try to figure out what it is and how does it relate to the poisoning at hand. Okay, <clears throat> so let's do it. C5H7NO3. Go to um, <clears throat> the result here. <clears throat> Click on that. Go to this database, <clears throat> and these are the compounds. 5-oxyperolinidine. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, carboxy acid. Okay, so okay, now what the hell is that? Where does that come from? Why is that relevant? What, how do I use this information medically? Is this something he was poisoned with? Is this an endogenous uh, metabolite? Is this an unusual metabolite? So these are the questions that you know, run into our mind. We're trying to figure out what this is. So we go to the literature. We find out that, aha, it has been described before in patients who have acetaminophen uh, poisoning, that when you deplete the glutathione, <clears throat> there's an alternate pathway that's formed, and one of the metabolites is, in fact, this 5-oxyproline. doesn't happen in the majority of us. It doesn't happen to anybody who normally just takes acetaminophen, but even people who, who overdose in acetaminophen, we don't usually see this metabolite, because this is an acid, <clears throat> and this acid will cause the, the accumulation of the acidosis in those two pre previous cases. We were able to prove very quickly that this is not an unknown acidemic uh, intoxicant. This was all part of the syndrome of acetaminophen. And we know what to do with acetaminophen. We have countermeasures and acetylcysteine, which perhaps would have been already given even before this uh, analysis took place. But the, but the point is that it ended there. We had the, the smoking gun of why the acidosis occurred. This is the power of some of the techniques that we have. All right, I want to give you some more cases. I hope you're enjoying these cases. Um, these are all real things that we've had to deal with. And so two and a half years ago, okay, so I play golf. It was a Saturday morning. I'm with my, my buddies. I get a phone call. It's, the, it's my laboratory. There has been a plane crash at SFO. Lots of people are coming to the hospital. We need your help. You need to get here. Okay, this is your worst nightmare. You know, plane crash, lots of victims, lots of medical care. Everybody has to be immobilized from the, from the uh, supply chain to the laboratory to the blood bank. And that's just counting our part, not counting the emergency part response. So what was this? This is the Asiana plane crash that occurred at SFO a couple of years ago. And you probably remember that because you people live here, as I did. This is not what's wrong with this picture. All right, yeah, I get it. You're not supposed to have, um, you're supposed to have a tail here. You're supposed to have the rest of the plane. Remember that the plane hit the rocks, and the um, 
people in the back row that happened to be students from Shanghai got ejected. They were run over by some of the equipment uh, that they didn't know that the kids were still in their uh, seats dead on the tarmac. That's not what's wrong. I want you to point out to a different part of this picture, all right? And it's better shown on this next slide. You see over here, these are the evacuation chutes that occur that automatically open when you open the door. And then the FAA says, we need to build planes that, whereby you can get everybody out in 90 seconds. And the only way to do that is to have these, these uh, evacuation jumps, these slides. And then I'm sure you've all heard the, the story, don't bring luggage with you, don't have high heels, jump, slide, get away from the plane as quickly as possible. The, the, the plane is burning, toxic gas filling, filling the air. Um, there is smoke, there is uh, poor visibility, and, uh, and you need to get out. What's wrong with this picture? How many people are going to be able to get out with that ladder? All right, well, so that ladder wasn't there when, when the plane was burning. It was put afterwards. What's wrong with this picture is that the evacuation chute, which is here on the, uh, with the port side, uh, didn't deploy on the starboard side. There should be remnants of that chute here. Instead, it deployed inside the plane. There was a malfunction. It all of a sudden had uh, inflated. And what happened was is there were two flight attendants who were in the galley when this was all happening. You know, they're, they're shouting out directions, stay calm, single file, take your shoes off, you know, the whole thing. They last to leave, one of the last to leave. And then when they opened this door, it exploded in their faces, knocked them out, and they were unconscious in this building, this burning up airplane. <clears throat> and so what happened to these two women? This is a story, you know, you're not going to really see anywhere. Nobody talks about it. It's not in, not, uh, in the news or, or displayed anywhere. It's something that we lived with. And what happened was is that the pilot, who really was going to be the last to get out, comes out of his cockpit and he sees these two women, their feet underneath this chute, this slide. And you go, well, that, that can't be right. You know, it's sort of like a cartoon when somebody opens uh, a raft in a closet, you know, and it, it, you're in the closet and it inflates and you're stuck against the, uh, the side of the wall. Well, that's what happened. They got these, these women who's, who's uh, unconscious and they're lying in a, in a, a plane that's, that's, that might explode. So what does he do? He goes back into the galley. He grabs an axe. Okay, so, you know, they have axes in the, in the cockpit because if they need to break the door down, they can. They don't want terrorists to come in, so it's securely locked, but they need to be able to get out, and they have these axes. So he, he pulled out this axe, sliced open with the sharp end of the, this uh, bag. You see here, this is still inflated. Pulls the two women out. They put it into an ambulance. They're sent to SFGH. I mean, just truly heroic. You know, I'm, I have to rescue these people. They're my colleagues, and, uh, and I'll do whatever it takes. And this is when I got the call. We have these two women. They don't appear to be physically injured. There are not a lot of physical, uh, uh, no bleeding, no bruising, no marks. But they, yet they have a significant metabolic acidosis, and they're really sick. They're unconscious, and we don't know what's going on. We want you to try to figure this out. So we beg the question of, okay, well, what is in one of these evacuation airbags? 
Well, here's the chemistry. It's sodium azide. Sodium azide is a very toxic chemical. We actually use it all the time in our reagents because it helps uh, as an antibacterial. But here's what happened. You take this, uh, and it's the same reaction that takes place in our automobiles. A, when, when the airbag needs to inflate, there is a spark. It causes an explosion of, of uh, sodium azide to produce nitrogen, and this nitrogen fills the, air, the bag. And it happens instantaneously, you know, milliseconds. And so in an automobile airbag, there's about 100 mil, uh, grams of this, of this poison. In an evacuation air chute of an airplane, of a major jumbo jet plane, which is about as long as from here to that wall, you're not talking milligrams here, you're talking kilograms. And so when they opened up this bag, there were tons of this unexploded powder exposing these flight attendants. And they thought that this was the reason for their um, continued uh, medical problems. One of them survived, the other one did not. We were able to provide an answer to this question within 24 hours. I had my people stay over, over the weekend, said, you know, we gotta figure this out. The lives of these women are at stake. And, and they were able to come through and determine what they thought was, was going on with this particular accident. So sometimes we can do some really good stuff if we're pushed to it. What's the antidote? There is none. Uh, well, I mean, you have to manage. The, the management is still supportive care, you know, to, to, to uh, normalize the acidosis with, with bicarbonate. But we wanted to know, is, is there continual exposure? Should there be uh, uh, charcoal? Should there be uh, some type of uh, decontamination that needs to take place? Where is it coming from? How much is there? So many questions. I'm not an ICU doc, uh, but uh, those are the kinds of things that are posed to us. Okay, let me talk about another story. This is about a U.S. soldier. So this was somebody who was um, stationed in Iraq, and he was a uh, bodybuilder, as many of our young soldiers are. And he goes to the Marine Corps base shop and gets this uh, muscle supplement freely sold by the uh, MCX. This is a copy of the, uh, of the actual uh, Marine Corps store. And during a workout, he develops chest pain, and he dies of a sudden death heart attack. Autopsy was conducted. His coronary arteries completely clean. This is a 24-year-old in top physical shape, and he dies of a heart attack. How does this happen? What was in that supplement? Well, <clears throat> we found this um, designer amine called dimethylamine, and that this was the cause of his death. It was, a, it was something that was in the supplement that shouldn't have been there, the Marine Corps didn't realize how dangerous some of these amines are, and it led to his death. We actually had another case just recently where we thought that it was dimethylamine, and we ended up finding out that it wasn't. So this does happen. The Marine Corps base has subsequently pulled this supplement from the rack a little bit too late for this 24-year-old soldier. Here's another case. I call it duffer dysfunction. Remember, I'm a golfer, duffer, golfer. It's about the senior golfer who orders an erectile dysfunction herbal medication over the Internet. Okay, so this is, you know, we're a mature audience here. I, I can talk about erections, and no one's going to snicker here. <clears throat> he hooks up with a female fan, and he doubles his dose of this herbal ED drug in hopes of having a, uh, a fun night. Well, it doesn't go well for him. He ends up dying of a heart attack while in bed, while having intercourse with this, uh, with this female fan. Of course, she's horrified, and, and she leaves the scene. 
we get the herbal medication. And the question is, what's in it? It's not, can you tell me if cocaine's in it? That's a target approach. No, the question was, what was in this thing that may have caused this person's death? And we did an analysis, and what we found out was there was a, uh, an analog to the active ingredients that are found in Cialis and Viagra. So when you buy these drugs, you have to get a prescription. You have to, um, these drugs were cleared by the FDA, and there's a series of warning labels. You know, don't use if you have cardiac problems or if you have circulatory problems. And these are the kinds of labels that the FDA does. Well, this was an herbal medication. It was laced with these drugs, but they were not controlled by the FDA. And we don't know what concentrations were put in there. We don't know how dangerous they are. There are no controls. Herbal medications are considered nutraceuticals, and they're not regulated by the FDA. And so anybody can buy them. And it's just like that Adderall Internet thing where anybody can make it in the middle of nowhere, sell it. And then if anybody makes a complaint to the FDA, which we did to the California FDA, they did an investigation, the company moved. New label new address, back in business in six weeks. This is what we're up against when we're dealing with, with herbal medications. So this was a story I wrote in my book. Okay, It actually wasn't about a professional golfer. I made that up. It was about this other guy who, who died of, uh, of this uh, ED uh, drug overdose. But what happened was that, um, <clears throat> so this is the, uh, analysis uh, that we did using our time of flight methodology, sudenafil and homosudenafil, hydroxyhomosudenafil, these are the active ingredients in Cialis. And so this story I wrote in, 19, in 2013, um, <clears throat> and this slide is entitled Life uh, Imitates Art. And the reason I do this is because this ended up happening. This exact story occurred in real life after I wrote the story. And it occurred to this person, Lamar Odom, former forward with the LA Lakers, married to one of the Kardashians, I think the Khloe Kardashian, uh, a year and a half ago. He goes to Las Vegas. He hires a couple of prostitutes. He buys this Viagra medication, herbal Viagra medication over the internet, has a, a good time with these women, and then ends up having a stroke. And he was vegetative for a couple of days. They, all the, the pundits said that he's not going to survive. But uh, he did survive, and, and he has got some continuing issues. But the point here is that uh, these things do happen. <clears throat> and I kid, even though it's not a laughing matter, I kid to people who I tell this story, gee, you should have bought my book. Here's another story. It's about an actress who is preparing for a part. Her agent is trying to relax her by baking cookies. Okay, so, all right, cookies. What's in these cookies? Trying to relax. <clears throat> the actress eats them, becomes hallucinogenic, calls her husband on the cell phone who's working. I want to jump out the window. You need to come home immediately. And by then, the agent had left. He comes home, puts the wife to bed, and when he's in the bathroom... She jumps out of bed and flies out the window, third floor window. Lands hard, survives at the general for about a week, and then dies of her injury. The interesting thing is that, okay, 
laced cookies, uh, it's got to be marijuana. Well, there was no marijuana. It was clean. And so we were asked the question, okay, if not this, then what? Was it LSD? Was it uh, some other poisonous uh, mushroom? Um, you know, what was in those cookies? Well, kind of cut a long story short, it's synthetic cannabis, uh, cannabis which is available uh, freely. Uh, some of these have been outlawed, but others have been uh, recreated. And uh, we can't keep up with the different forms of synthetic cannabis. Uh, cannabis. There are hundreds of these molecules out there, and they're all a little bit different. And we don't have standards for just a handful of them. And so we cannot identify them using our targeted procedure. We have to use this um, untargeted um, time of flight mass spectrometry. These are just some of the compounds that are now actually banned. The interesting thing about it is this JWH stands for John W. Huffman, who was a synthetic chemist at uh, Clemson University a decade ago. Uh, he was charged to make synthetic cannabinoids that have the therapeutic effects, but not the hallucinogenic effects. And lo and behold, he ended up creating just the opposite. Drugs that were more hallucinogenic and less medically useful, and he even had the nerve to name the compounds after himself. We have a similar problem with bath salts, which are synthetic amines. These are the different uh, commercial products. Um, what happens is that um, <clears throat> teenagers and adolescents will buy this, and they'll put it in their bathroom, and their parents will think that these are legitimate bath salts. You'd have to wonder, why would a 17-year-old want to take long baths? Okay, And if you look here very closely, it says not for human consumption. All right. Well, these are drugs disguised as bath salts, and they take them, and they get high, and it causes a lot of problems. Bath salt chemistry is incredibly complex, not just the compounds, as you see here, but the metabolism is quite uh, variable. Different compounds, dozens of different things that we have to look for. We don't have standards for all of these. This is really kind of a nightmare for us, but yet it's something that we have all the time. And then I want to show you this other case that involves a designer amine. It's, um, <clears throat> it's in conjunction with this party that takes place every year at the Cow Palace. To the life of me, I can't understand why uh, law enforcement allow this to happen. But in 2010, this particular party went deadly. And my story is about a, a male who attends a rave party. <clears throat> He's bumping and grinding to the music. It's hot. It's crowded. There's a mosh pit. There is uh, a lot of uh, uh, strobe lights. There is uh, loud and, and techno music. I've never been to one. Um, I'm, it's not the kind of thing that I do. <clears throat> 45 minutes later, he takes a pill from somebody who gives it to him for nothing. Try this. This is cool. You'll like it. And this person actually gave this pill to a number of different people. And they ended up being sick, and they went to near neighboring hospitals. One of them, unfortunately, died. And I want to show you a news report that, uh, that document not only the death of this uh, person, but what the police thought was going on. All right? So this is the poster for Pop 2010. There's going to be a Pop 2017. And uh, I hope that it doesn't go as, as tragic as this one. Now to that huge rave at the Cow Palace that sent 11 people to the hospital tonight. Five of them are still in critical condition, including one who's in a coma. We're also learning more tonight about the young... Oh, 
sorry. KTVU's Amber Lee, live tonight at one hospital that is treating some of those patients. Amber? Frank, we're at SF General where 23-year-old Anthony Mata died and two others remain hospitalized here following Saturday night's rave. Tonight, Anthony's family told us they want those responsible prosecuted. Mata's aunt, Marie Ariano, clutched his high school graduation photo, telling us the family is in shock. We love him and we miss him to death. What's anything we just want back? Anthony lived here in Santa Clara with his aunt and grandmother. They told us he worked at a Toyota dealership in Milpitas as a technician and aspired to be a mechanic. They okay, so this was an unfortunate death. The, uh, if you remember from the beginning of that newscast, the police thought that it was tainted ecstasy because ecstasy usually isn't that uh, fatal. We don't usually see the same degree of uh, mortality. But uh, there was something different about this particular preparation that led to this person's death and led to uh, the hospitalization of, of seven others. <clears throat> and so my staff, this again was a Friday night, they had to go, they had to uh, work overtime to try to look using our targeted screening procedure what was the drug tainted with and what are we dealing with with the other seven people who are still in the ICUs across the Bay Area, not just SFGH. And we ended up determining that, in fact, the compound not only did not contain any adulterants, well, it was very pure. And, in fact, it was at a concentration that was two and a half times the normal street dosage of ecstasy. This was a simple ecstasy overdose. It was not tainted medications. We were able to communicate that corrective actions were taken, and these other women, other, other uh, attendees survived. I think I'm going to uh, skip ahead here. I'll talk about this case and then one other. This is an interesting case documented in my other book on clinical laboratory testing, The Hidden Assassin, When Clinical Lab Tests Go Awry. It's about a chemist who works in his father's rug factory. And he's playing soccer when he collapses on the field. At the hospital, he is cyanotic. He has a uh, uh, O2 desaturation, which means that he has something that is causing his oxygenation to be reduced. If you don't have good oxygenation, then you can't survive. So he had um, a... Uh, uh, oxygen saturation level that was well below the 95 to 100%. So we did a toxicological analysis to determine why his oxygen, I'm sorry, his hemoglobin was being oxidized to this oxidized form called methemoglobin. Methemoglobin doesn't carry oxygen, and it leads one to be um, cyanotic. And so what we found was this compound, um, which is a uh, uh, something that is found in the pigment of um, of dyes that are used to make rugs. Okay, well, so that makes sense. That maybe that was a some type of chemical um, <clears throat> industrial um, uh, industrial pigment. So we sent investigators to the company to look for use of this dye and could find none. There was no exposure in that uh, manufacturing, er, in that uh, rug company. They weren't actually making the rugs. They weren't actually coloring the rugs. They were just selling them, handling them and selling them. And we found no evidence of this chemical anywhere in the, uh, in the rugs. So we, did, we said, well, what else might be going on? What are we missing here? Well, here is uh, the chemistry of this particular product. It starts with the compound on the left. 
All right. And again, I don't expect you to know what that is. This is this is not a chemistry lecture, but this is um, this has got three nitrogen groups and a and a ring that contains a carbon group. This is something that we call trinitrotiolene. And you probably know what the abbreviation stands for. It's TNT. This is an explosive. This is a guy that perhaps was making a bomb in his home, <laughs> exposed to this chemical, ended up coming to our hospital, metabolized it to this compound that we, we detected in his blood, and that, in fact, he was a terrorist. Went to his home, found bomb-making materials, contacted Homeland Security. He's in jail today. Okay, that part's fictitious. <laughs> he wasn't a terrorist. He wasn't making a bomb. But sometimes you have to embellish stories, you know, to make them more interesting. <laughs> I apologize. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about actually has nothing to do with our toxicology work. So it's about this woman, a legal aide, who undergoes mandatory drug testing and comes up positive for THC. This is a true story, okay? And it just happened a couple years ago. And so she says, a mistake has been made. I don't use marijuana. The lab must have had a sample mix-up. I want to do whatever I can to prove my innocence. It's a custody issue. If she was positive for THC, then she would not be able to maintain custody over her child relative to the uh, divorced husband. So she's got a lot at stake here. She agrees to have DNA analysis on a fresh urine sample that she donates in, in uh, my lab, a fresh blood sample, and, and the urine sample that was sent to the toxicology lab that came out positive for THC. So the objective here is to show that the DNA markers of the urine-positive THC doesn't match her blood and urine, and therefore those were not her urine sample. That was not her urine sample originally. Okay, so you get the, how this works. You know, DNA is excreted into the urine of, uh, of, of people. And it turns out that women excrete more DNA than men uh, because there's vulvular contamination during urination. <clears throat> Nevertheless, it's pretty routine. We used to do this all the time. So we offer to do the DNA analysis. Uh, the important thing is that we have to make sure that I have the right person that it wasn't somebody who looks like the person who donated the urine, but it was actually somebody else, in which case the DNA is not going to match and she's going to get off, right? So I, I, I have her come in. Her mother was with her, asked for a government photo ID, looking at it closely, you know, is that you? You know, okay, maybe. And then I said, do you have a twin sister? Because if she has a twin sister and it's not a fraternal, I mean, it's a fraternal and not identical, she'll have different DNA, and she'll look like the driver's license. No, I don't have a twin sister. But, you know, I'm still not completely satisfied. So then I, uh, and there are other issues like, okay, did you have a kidney transplant? Well, why is that relevant? If you have a transplanted kidney, and we do them here in this building, then your DNA from the kidney and the urine that's excreted from that kidney will be your donor's. It won't be yours. Your blood will have one DNA, and the donated kidney that you have in your body will produce a different DNA. All right? She's 25 years old, no history of kidney transplants. So I said, okay, we're good there. 
And then the last thing I said was, do you have any um, identifying tattoos? Yes, I have one on my back. Can I take a picture of it? So I did. And my reasoning was, all right, if it comes to court and they want me to prove that the woman who showed up in my lab was the woman who said donated that urine sample was the same person. And I'm thinking no two people who look alike are going to have the exact same tattoo and that this would be the identifying factor. You know, 25 years ago when we started this work, when I asked for, if I would have asked for tattoos, I probably would have gotten slapped in the face. But everybody's got tattoos now, right? So this actually worked, everybody who's, who's young enough. So I told her, if the suspect urine doesn't match your fresh urine, <clears throat> then I have to prove that the urine came from you. And so, yes, a photo is taken. So here's the test, part of the test that we do. It's not all of it. It's a, it's a DNA test. And so um, we have these different um, genes, and each of these genes can have one or two copies, depending on whether or not you get one copy from your mother and one from your father. They could be the same. They could be different. So here are um, six or five different uh, genes, and this is um, a hypothetical genotype for this individual, okay, on a fresh a blood sample. And then we collect a urine sample, and then we use the sample that was tested drug positive from the lab who did it, and then they all have to match. And you can see they all matched, and we have identity. So had we seen this, I would have told the woman, I would have told their counselor, yes, that was her urine, Yes, she was positive for THC. You know, there's, she's lying to you. And most of the time when we did this, 90% of the time they did match. It's really more of a psychological issue of denial than one of real difference, right? So this is a perfect DNA identity match. And again, this is abbreviated. We have many more markers, and they just make the differentiation uh, a little bit uh, more complicated. All right, <clears throat> now... Once we saw these situation where there was three markers in a individual, which says, well, wait a minute now, you, where's that third marker coming from? We don't have a th another set of genes in us. We only have two chromosomes. Maybe there's some type of mosaic, uh, some type of other ab abnormalities. Uh, or more likely, the, the question is that this urine is contaminated with somebody else's DNA. And therefore, if the urine is contaminated, maybe that's where the THC came from. So had we seen this, the person would have been exonerated. Okay? So it's either they match or they don't match, and we have a conclusion. Well, when we did this, we got yet another combination, which really made us scratch our head, a combination that's different from the two that I just mentioned. It matched, and yet it didn't match. What am I talking about? <clears throat> okay, so this is what happened to the, to the kidney transplant. Uh, the fresh urine um, <clears throat> doesn't match the fresh blood, but the fresh urine matches the toxicology sample because it's coming from the same person. So these two don't always have to match if you have a kidney transplant, but that's not the case here. We documented that this woman did not have a kidney transplant. So this is the results that we got, and let me walk you through it. You got the fresh serum, serum or the blood. We got the fresh urine, okay? They don't match, and in fact, there are some extra alleles here, right? Three here. There's not an A here. There is an A here. So if we had just gotten these two, 
we would say, all right, <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is a, cont a contamination. But we do this other test. I'm sorry, this, this is the toxicology sample. So this sample does not match this serum, and we say, okay, there's, there is a, a mix-up or there is a contamination. But here is the fresh urine collected on the same day as the fresh serum in a non-transplant patient. These two don't match. They came from the same woman, and yet they don't match. And, in fact, they match the unknown toxicology sample. Totally perplexed. How could this possibly happen? How can you have somebody produce two different types of DNA at the same time outside of a context of a transplant? And, in fact, the urine of the suspect sample matches the one of the fresh sample. This is not a coincidence. The chances of two urines identically matching is one in, in 150,000. And yet we got identical matches between the suspect urine sample and the fresh urine sample, and they don't match the blood sample. It took us a while to figure this out. I had to talk a lot to some of my colleagues, and here's the best that we can come up with. The legal aid had sexual intercourse with the same man on the night before she donated urine on both occasions. All right? So what we were seeing is um, DNA contamination, not seminal fluid, but, but uh, um, <clears throat> regular DNA um, from, from, the, from the man, and that it was contaminating, uh, is actually not spermatozoa, but the uh, other uh, DNA found in the volvular region, uh, region when she voided. And the fact that she had sex with the same man both times before she underwent the uh, urine collection was why they matched. And so then the next question could be added, asked, well, then maybe the um, partner had smoked marijuana and that the THC that was found in her urine came from him. Okay? That argument doesn't hold because we actually don't have urine from that individual. We have um, a contaminated DNA. We have cells. We don't have any fluids. We just have uh, cellular contamination. The blood had to have, the DNA had to have come from the donor. And that, in fact, it does match. And that she probably was uh, donating positive THCs. Very complicated situation. I tried to explain it to the lawyer. You know, don't take this case because if they understand what this is all about, she's going to be convicted. He ignored my information, went to the judge. And the judge didn't understand it either. But looked at the DNA and said, oh, yeah, it doesn't match. She, and, and she got off. So, you know, science is, is wonderful, but sometimes it really requires somebody to completely understand what it is that we're doing. So I hope that you've enjoyed some of my, my tales. Um, I can tell you that uh, um, <clears throat> if you're interested in purchasing one of my books, I will uh, be around a little bit after to sign them. And, and many of the stories that I talk about, there are really more behind-the-scenes part of these stories. So thank you again for attending. So we have time for questions. Um, please. Do you do when a patient arrives at the San Francisco General ER and is comatose and you suspect it's some type of a toxin, um, how do you screen for all these thousands and thousands of chemicals? 
So I have to repeat the question for the video. The question is that you have a patient who comes in who is comatose, and uh, you have no idea what it is. They can't tell you what they what they're getting into, and uh, and and how do I screen for for that? And this is where we use this untargeted time of flight analysis. That uh, yes, there are many things that can that could be there, but if it's going to be enough to cause this injury or this um, this this comatose, then it's probably going to be present in, in higher than baseline concentrations. So we think that um, many of these will stick out, that there will be very high peaks. Those are the ones that we go after. Try to find the molecular mass. Try to find some candidate compounds and then turn over our list to, the, to our colleagues. Now, this is a, a, a program that we don't offer to our ICU docs because they'll just get confused uh, about, you, I don't want all these lists. You need to tell me what it is. And they can't ferret out the individual c components. When I worked with the, with the California Poison Control Center, they have the knowledge of ferreting out which of these compounds is most likely and go from there. So there's a, there's a means by spectrometry and whatever to screen for all of these uh, uh, different compounds on one whole peak? So the question is that our instruments will screen for all of these compounds. No, what they do is they find a chemical that's present, and then we have to identify what that is. So it's already there, and uh, we can pick it out and then try to ana analyze and figure out what it is. Yeah. Uh, so there is some isolation that goes on before you do your electron blasting to get the... the so the question is that there are, our comment really, that there is a separation technique before we actually inject it into the mass spectrometry, and that's absolutely correct. What I didn't show you is the front end of these instruments. It's a, either a liquid chromatograph or a... Or a or a, a gas chromatograph, and the function of that is to separate the compounds first, and then you identify which each one of them are. So in that one case where Patricia Stallings was uh, falsely accused of poisoning her child, the sketches that I showed you was the first step, was the chromatograph, but they did not do the second step, and therefore they did not pick it up. Anybody else? Yes, on the left. Doctor, in your descriptions of the false drug manufacturers, those who are making drugs which are killing people. Why is the district attorney not engaged in criminal prosecution of these people? Why are they allowed to just move to another state and reopen for business under another name? So the question is, uh, um, the, these uh, chemists, these garage chemists who are making these compounds, why are they not being prosecuted and why aren't they uh, incarcerated? Uh, and if we knew who they were and we could identify the source of them, then, in fact, that would happen. But most of the time, we have no idea where they get it from. And, you know, when we talk to the patients, they themselves are very cagey about where they get it from because they think that that will incriminate them themselves as having criminal activity, and they don't tell us a lot. It's, it's hard enough for even for them to give us the compound, even when we assure them that we're not law enforcement, we're not really interested in, in uh, trying to prosecute, we're trying to find truth, and we're trying to help other people who are intoxicated in the same manner. Yeah? Can you address uh, the issue of metabolites a little bit more, because all, many of these compounds don't exist in your native form, like to start off with cocaine. So are you actually analyzing total cocaine or percent of metabolites? Uh, and over what time frames do you typically get to these 
So the question is, uh, do we measure the parent compounds or do we look for metabolites? When it comes to these medications, herbals, pills, we do look for the parent compound because there is no metabolism that takes place. It's an easier analysis for us to do, and also the concentrations are much higher. When we're trying to look at biological samples, particularly blood, but also in urine, Yes. The answer is that it's not just the parent compound. It's sometimes a metabolite, and sometimes it's a metabolite that doesn't occur in everybody. And we don't have standards, or we don't even know what the metabolism is, because if it's not described in the literature, then we're guessing. We have a particular structure, and based on our pharmacology knowledge, we might be able to predict that this will metabolize in this way and then look for it. So it is a very much a, a mystery and a uh, um, <clears throat> puzzle-solving activity. Uh, the woman in the back. Um, I think it's called Narcan. It's administered yes. in emergency situations. Do you have uh, a lot of optimism because of the use of this sort of thing? That we'll have more of that? That we'll have more abuse of? More tools, for example, uh, to, to reverse the effects of Okay, so the question is, uh, uh, Narcan is used to overdose uh, opiate. Uh, it is an uh, um, um, antagonist to the mu receptor, and it uh, tends to reverse the symptoms. Are we going to have other um, um, medications? I, I, I might even just uh, put uh, Dr. Vo on the spot here. <laughs> Do you have a response? Are there other things that we can use? So for the, uh, again, for the video, uh, Dr. Vo opined on the fact that we are dealing with a lot of designer drugs for which we don't even know what the pharmacology is, let alone begin to have antidotes that might be effective for particular classes. Narcan or naloxone is used as a uh, sort of an opiate uh, antagonist, and, and we know uh, the characteristics of that. But will it work for some of these other compounds? You know, it's, it's really a crapshoot at this time. Uh, this, yes, in the middle. Prescription drugs, um, we always hear about all of these side effects that can occur. If you're in a situation where you go to a hospital and you are seen in the ICU and you've taken a prescription drug recently, would that normally be something that um, the ICU would look at from the point of view of toxicology to perhaps make a diagnosis? So the question is about uh, use of prescription drugs and how that might, inter might interact with somebody being very sick to the point of an ICU admission. Um, usually at therapeutic concentrations, 
that's not a problem. It's not going to produce the kinds of side effects that we see unless there's some type of genetic variance which causes somebody to under-metabolize or over-metabolize depending on whether the drug is a pro-drug or an active drug. So we can see uh, variances in a population because when FDA releases a therapeutic drug, they do studies on normal genotypes. And then if you're on one of these extreme genotypes where you have too many copies of a metabolizing gene or that the gene that you, the enzyme used to break it down doesn't work, then yes, toxicities occur. I can tell you, however, that the world of toxicogenomics, being able to explain why some therapeutic drugs work for some people and, and cause toxicity in others is a very infant field. And from a poison center day-to-day trying to evaluate a particular overdose situation in a N equals one sample, it doesn't happen. We don't have those tools right now, and certainly not in real time. Do you have a question? Time of flight analysis was a huge advance, uh, and that it, the primary benefit was being able to measure mass very precisely, and that gave you uh, uh, that identified the pieces uh, accurately. Uh, and on the other hand, you you needed a huge library of of molecules in order to distinguish uh, uh, you know what is actually in the sample. And so what I'm wondering is. Is there any benefit to increasing the mass resolution that you have in the time of flight analysis? Or is, does the real work have to be done in just trying a whole bunch of compounds with the equipment that you already have? So the question dealt with the two different strategies that we have for detecting unknowns. We have the targeted analysis, which is a mass spectrum, which is dependent on a library. And we have this untargeted analysis where we're looking at exact molecular weight and exact molecular formula. And the question was, can we get more mileage by having even more higher resolution of our mass spectrum of our untargeted? And the answer is no. We're at the point where we can already identify the molecular formula of a particular compound. What we need now are tools that help us identify what that compound is, not just the name of the compound, but how it breaks down and and what other things we need to look for. And that would require uh, a massive literature search that we're doing now. And if there are tools that say, okay, if we find this, then go here, go here, go here, and then look for these things, that would be very helpful. That would make the, uh, our analysis much faster. We don't want to be in, in the Michael Jackson turnaround times. We want to be really more of, of same-day turnaround times. Yes? Is your office um, predominantly involved in research and studies or in reaction and um, interpretation of you know, a, a patient who comes in with um, some symptoms? And additionally, do you have chemistry detectives who go out to places like rug shops and look at things as your example alluded to? So the question is, um, does my lab do research or do I run a clinical lab? And the answer is both. We have routine things that we do that everybody does, but we also recognize that that's not enough for toxicology, which is why we have brought in these other pieces of equipment and of trying to to advance the field so that we can uh, understand um, what might be happening in a given situation. The thing about toxicology is that you can't do controlled trials. You know, there's not going to be anybody who will sign up for a drug intoxication study. Ethics won't allow us to do that. 
And so the research that we do is critically important, not only to do it, but to report it so that when it happens again, we at least have some experience of somebody having done it once, having said, well, here's what happened, and here's what the person looked like, and what the symptoms were, and what the lab tests were, and, and maybe sometimes if five or six of these cases could be brought together in type, some type of series, then some conclusions can be made about what's going on. Um, my lab itself really doesn't investigate metabolism, doesn't try to uncover everything that there might be about a particular substance because there's too many and we don't know what to focus on. So the answer to your question is no. We're, it's, it's enough that we can just do the kinds of work that we're doing. And I'm sorry, I forgot the second question. Oh, yes. Yeah, so the second question is, do we send out investigators? So I don't, and the Poison Center generally doesn't. But sometimes the Department of Public Health will have funds to do that. They'll do an investigation if they believe that it's in the best interest of the public. So Dr. Vo just finished a rotation in the, new, in the lead screening program at the Department of Public Health, and they do go out and investigate houses where there might be lead exposures in um, vessels that are contaminated with lead or, or children who eat lead paint. Um, and, and so, yes, some of that goes on. But my particular story actually didn't happen. We talked about it. Actually, we did talk about it. Uh, um, Kathy's boss, Dr. Smolin, and I said, you know, well, maybe we should send somebody out there and, and see if there's something funny on, going on. Uh, but we actually didn't do it. Yeah. There seems to be a big gap between the uh, recollection of Let's say the the, um, the herbal, the non the non drugs you take, and the regular drugs, and also the drugs that come from foreign countries. What's been done about those? Well, uh, so the question is, there is a gap between the legitimate therapeutic drugs that uh, are proven and have a FDA clearance versus drugs that are um, designer, which are meant for um, really profit and recreational purposes, and in some cases, um, other motivations of, of harm. And the question is, what can we do about it? And I don't have a good answer for that. I do have a suggestion. So those of you who um, saw the president give his uh, state or his first uh, message to Congress last night, he talked about trying to deregulate the government, in particular the FDA. He actually said for every regulation that we bring in, we want to get rid of two. Many of us um, are very scareful of that. I think that regulations do serve a purpose. We can argue that maybe there are too many. Maybe there are um, <clears throat> overboard. But in this particular case, if we don't regulate herbal medications, then this is going to continue because anybody can make anything, and they're not herbals. They're drugs, and they're clandestines, and, and we do have harm. I don't know what you think about that, but this is what I believe. All right, very good. Thank you. It's, uh, time is up. Thank you again for attending. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.